What's up guys? Welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thank you all for being with me here today. If you want to like, subscribe, or uh, share the video with somebody else, that would also be great for me. Uh, today I want to talk about Sangamo's updated data from last week. We saw some very bullish news for them. And I also want to talk about Viking's lesser known product, VK5211. So yeah, glad to be here. Wasn't able to get to a video on the weekend, just got caught up in the nice weather and then had a late hockey game Sunday night. So uh, I'm here today, and I think I have a good presentation for you all, so yeah, let's uh, get into it. So before I do get into Sangamo and Viking, I did want to comment on the macro news that we got on Friday, uh, which, you know, the market is already digested already, so it's not super uh, relevant right now, but I did just want to comment that the non-farm payrolls that came in were at 196000 uh, which is a big step up from what we saw last month, which is only like 20,000, and I think it was revised up to, to 30 and change, but unemployment also stayed stable at 3.8%. So to me, this is pretty much saying that the economy is still doing well in the U.S., and uh, we're not, the, the re looming recession hasn't come yet, which is good for us holding long equities. And really moving forward, we're just going to start looking at this data every month and seeing if there's going to be a trend in the wrong direction. And once that starts happening, we're going to see the stock market uh, respond in a negative way. But so far, this looks good, and uh, I'm comfortable holding my uh, my long positions, even though, you know, every day we hear a negative headline about how the economy is overextended and that there's a global growth shrink that's happening. So besides that, though, today I wanted to talk mostly about Sangamo and Viking. So let's, uh, let's get into the Sangamo data. And they had two press releases regarding their um, projects here their beta thalassemia gene-edited cell therapy data, as well as their gene therapy for hemophilia A. And before we talk about this, I did want to mention some info about blood disorders in general, because this is really the topic today, and this would be a good base just to, just to let everybody's on the same page. So the, the major blood disorders that are relevant for today are hemophilia A and B, and then beta thalassemia and sickle cell disease. So hemophilia A and B are really just, uh, they're missing a clotting factor. And hemophilia A is a deficiency in factor 8. Hemophilia B is a deficiency in factor 9. And when you don't have these clotting factors, you're very susceptible to, to bleeding out, which can be fatal. So to fix this, the, the most common treatment right now is just inputting that coagulation factor back in your body. And these recombinant factors can be made and then injected into you or infused into you, and then you can clot normally. So this prevents a lot of the fatal consequences of having hemophilia, but there's still a lot of negative side effects that come along with needing this recombinant therapy. And oftentimes people develop antibodies towards these recombinant factors that make them less functional uh, as the patient develops in their disease. So I also put here that coagulation factors are used to treat patients and uh, I did touch on this when I talked about the Catalyst Bio uh, trading idea that I had. So uh, Merceptacog Alpha, it's a, it's a modified coagulation factor that can help in patients that have hemophilia. Um, but again, these aren't ideal. Ideally, if the patient could produce their own coagulation factors, this would be huge for these patients and uh, would supersede the need to, for them to get these constant infusions. So... For the proposed therapy that I put here, uh, better coagulation factors as well as gene therapy. So Catalyst Bio is working on these better coagulation factors, and check out that video and you'll, you'll be able to see that. And then other companies are looking at gene therapy to input that gene back into the liver correctly and then have the liver produce these coagulation factors so that 
the patient can produce their own endogenous factor eight or factor nine. So besides the hemophilias, um, two other common blood disorders are beta thalassemia and sickle cell disease. And these two are related in that they're both due to a mutation in the beta globin gene of hemoglobin. So normal adult hemoglobin is um, heterotetramer of four different hemoglobin chains, and they're pairs of alpha chains and pairs of beta chains. In beta thalassemia, there's a mutation in the beta globin gene that either leads to a shortage or complete destruction of red blood cells. And this does depend on whether or not the mutation is heterozygous or homozygous. The treatment for this is blood transfusion, so just putting back in uh, healthy blood cells can help these patients, but this does lead to negative consequences that include an iron overload. So iron chelation is necessary for these patients, so that's not really ideal as a, as a treatment. Um, hydroxyurea is another treatment, and this is due to its effects on increasing fetal hemoglobin expression, and I will talk about that. Um, bone marrow transplant is also an option. It's also not an ideal therapy for these patients. Um, what's most ideal is to just get healthy red blood cells in the patient. And in order to do this, you can take out some bone marrow cells, gene edit them, and then put them back into a patient. And then those bone marrow cells will be able to produce healthy red blood cells again. So that's what uh, Sangamo is hoping to do. I put gene therapy here as another potential idea. Um, if you're able to inject a virus into a patient that reintroduces the healthy beta globin gene, potentially this could work as a therapy, even though it's not really being looked at that much. Sickle cell disease is similar to the beta thalassemia disease, except it's a specific mutation that leads to sickling of red blood cells. So you get this abnormal red blood cell shape that leads to all the negative consequences associated with the disease. Treating this, blood transfusions are a main treatment. Uh, hydroxyurea is also commonly used, as well as pain meds to deal with the vaso-occlusive crises. Ex vivo stem cell therapy would work here, uh, as well as potential gene therapy, and then I put Voxolator because I have touched on global blood, and uh, this product fixes the sickling shape that, uh, that helps patients quite a bit. So given all of this information, uh, Sangamo is using a gene therapy for hemophilia A, and then they're also using an ex vivo stem cell therapy for beta thalassemia. So to touch on their Heme A product uh, in collaboration with Pfizer, this is the construct that they're infusing into patients, liver-specific promoter that expresses the factor VIII gene into humans, and you know we're hoping that this factor VIII will be expressed at a high level and then circulate in the blood and be able to allow normal clotting function into the patients. So they did a dose escalation study, and what they saw is that the the medium and high dose, they were able to get very robust factor eight activity in these patients, which is great. So we see very fast onset. I think four or five weeks here, they're starting to see very, very high factor eight activity levels. And the activity levels are very close to 100, which is, which is very good and very comparable to Biomarin, which is what they saw. Um, so it is a little bit early in the trial, but given that this medium dose here is able to see pretty durable treatment, at least up to 40 weeks, we could expect this to occur in the higher patients, but we're going to wait and see how that works out. They uh, mentioned that none of the patients were on prophylactic steroids, which is a step up from Spark. A lot of their patients needed prophylactic steroids once they started to see some, some problems associated with their vector. This is very bullish for the stock, and I think they're going to be a very good competitor to the other gene therapies that are on the market for hemophilia A. I thought I would compare this to Biomarin's 
uh, Valrox right here. Um, so here they, they show a similar effect, um, a lot more variability, even though in the Sangamo product, we only see like two or three patients that are at their dose escalation trial, but Biomere in here, the, the treatment does kind of wane a little bit as they get uh, further into their disease, but we don't have this data for um, Sangamo. But to compare it to Biomarin, it's, it's very comparable and maybe a little bit better, but it is a little early to, to say. If we compare the Spark trial, Spark actually is, is not able to get very good factor eight activity at all comparatively to the other two. And, you know, I had a position in Spark for quite a while and uh, I did like them as a company and I sold after they got acquired, but their uh, factor activity was quite a bit lower. And really all you need is a certain amount of factor eight activity to reduce the amount of bleeds that occur. And Spark was able to see that even though you know, if, you, if you're looking at this data in your patient, obviously you want the data that's going to show the most durable and efficacious factor eight activity without going over, say, 100 or 150%. But uh, the point is that Spark Sangamo is definitely competitive with the other two companies, and, uh, and I think it's great to see. And it'll be good to see their expansion cohort to see whether or not they get a lot more variability in, in these two, in the high-dose patients. All right, so to talk about their beta thalassemia product, which is a little bit different, it's an autologous stem cell therapy. So what they do here is they aphorese CD34 positive cells from the patient, gene edit them somehow, and you can do this with CRISPR or zinc fingers, it doesn't really matter as long as it works. And uh, Sangamo is using their zinc finger technology to do this, but you know the company CRISPR AG is using um, CRISPR to do their uh, mutation here, but I this is kind of why I feel like CRISPR is, is a short, because it doesn't really matter how you introduce the mutation as long as it works. So if Sangam was able to get successful knockout of the gene using their zinc fingers, there's no real advantage to doing CRISPR. What they do here is they knock out this BCL11A enhancer, which normally represses fetal hemoglobin expression. And so when they knock out this enhancer, they can reactivate fetal hemoglobin and this will allow recovery of red blood cells because they'll express gamma globulin instead of beta globulin. At least the, the ratios will be favorable to gamma globulin so that the gammas can pair with the alphas and get functional red blood cells rather than the defective beta pairing with the alpha. Suffice to say that increasing fetal hemoglobin is essential in this therapy to get good red blood cells again. So that's what I have here written down. I also note that the zinc finger delivery is through a non-viral means. And at first this caught my eye because I remember that in their other zinc finger in vivo technologies, they use a viral mechanism to do it. But if you think about it, they, don't, they only need to rely on viral methods when it's very difficult to get the gene into cells, like in an in vivo situation. And if they don't need to do that here, they, they probably recover a lot more cells when they when they don't do something as negative to them like introduce a virus. So electroporation can get mRNA into cells quite easily. You know, it might avoid a lot of cell death. So I don't think this is a this is a big tell or anything like that. But once they do that, they uh, they harvest the cells and then infuse them back into the patient after myeloablative preconditioning uh, step. So what we're hoping is that the fetal hemoglobin will be increased a bunch and then total hemoglobin will be stable or increased at least within the reference range. So uh, I mentioned down here that this therapy 
is uh, different than lentiglobin bluebirds therapy, which actually tries to reintroduce a, a fixed beta globin gene. Sangamo could have an advantage if the fetal hemoglobin expression is uh, is increased such that it improves the total hemoglobin levels in these patients and really reduces the need for blood transfusions. So just to give you an idea of bluebirds, so in their B0, B0 genotypes, three out of eight of them are free of chronic RBC transfusions. So there is some opportunity here for Sangamo to do better than bluebird if, uh, if their treatment works, works well. And if you look at their average um, hemoglobin levels, they're between like nine and 11, which is outside the normal reference range. I, uh, yeah, so the normal reference range is 13.5 to 17.5 for a male. Um, I, I should have checked and seen whether or not these were male patients, but here's the data that we saw with one patient with B0, B0 beta thalassemia um, genotype. So it's a very severe, severe form of beta thalassemia. And uh, they underwent many blood transfusions that are denoted by the red arrows here. And uh, then you can see where time zero, they infuse ST400. And uh, what we see is very stable total hemoglobin levels, which is good to see. They haven't needed more blood transfusions later in, in the treatment here, but it is a little bit early. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can continue to see this trend or at least an uptick in hemoglobin levels as the treatment continues. But the, the thing that's most impressive to me is this big upregulation in the percentage of fetal hemoglobin in these patients. So the normal fetal hemoglobin as a percent of total hemoglobin is under 1% as an adult, but here they get up to 30%. So that's a huge increase. And this is, you know, suggests to me that the therapy actually worked. It'll be nice to see more than just one patient for sure, but this is definitely encouraging to them. And, uh, and yeah, and I think it's definitely bullish for the stock and definitely justifies the increase that we saw on, uh, God, I think it was, Wednesday or Thursday last week when they released this data. So um, I'm going to be interested to seeing future developments of the data. Now, I'm not taking a position in Sangamo, and the reason for that is uh, because I do think that we're going to see some MPS 1 and 2 data later in the year. We heard on their previous call that uh, they're going to do ERT withdrawal for these patients, and I, I don't have a lot of hope for the, those studies. And uh, they mentioned that it's going to be expected in through the rest of the year. So they're also doing this, these second-generation zinc fingers for the therapy. Um, and I think they're doing this because they're anticipating that this treatment might not work. The nail in the coffin is going to be ERT withdrawal failure. So be wary of that if you are buying Sangamo at these levels. I'm going to wait and see how this works out and then maybe jump into a long position again. Um, so that's the only reason why I'm not comfortable holding Sangamo is because these projects are, are a little risky for me. In terms of their preclinical products, they've got some for neurological disorders as well as Fabry disease. And uh, Fabry disease, I think they're starting uh, phase one at the end of this year. So that'll be good data to look out for. Uh, I do think these products hold, hold potential, but without it being in the clinic yet, it's hard to get a real feel for them. Sangamo also mentioned that they signed an agreement with Brammer Bio for a manufacturing facility. And uh, this is very good, obviously, because we want to make sure that Sangamo will be able to produce these AAV therapies at a large scale, and also ones that comply with good manufacturing practices. So having this agreement in place really makes them um, in a position to be able to provide these therapies at a, at a, at a safe level and to scale. 
All right, so I just wanted to do an overall look at their pipeline. So today I touched on Hemophilia A as well as their ST400 product, and uh, these I'm very bullish on. I am less bullish on their MPS1 and 2 as well as their Hemophilia B product because it's a similar uh, construct as, as the MPS1 and 2 with the you know multiple zinc fingers involved. So um, I am wary about buying into them here, but you know I'm very encouraged that if this doesn't work, they're going to shift gears into uh, the products that do work and do more of the right things. So I did talk about their neurological programs that are preclinical, pre so these have hope as well. And uh, yeah, so that's where I'm at with Sangamo. In, uh, in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have been so quick to sell my shares after the MPS 1 and 2 data, but, you know, uh, hindsight is always twenty twenty. so... We'll, uh, we'll see, but I'm, I'm encouraged and I'm glad for Sangamo that they were able to see this positive data after the hiccups, after the MPS 1 and 2. So that's what I got for them. Uh, Going to shift gears to Viking Therapeutics, though. All right, so with Viking, I've really only spoken about the VK2809 product, which is a thyroid receptor beta agonist, and that's because NASH is such an exciting field right now. Um, they've seen positive data in NAFLD, but they're going to be doing a phase 2b trial later in the year for biopsy-confirmed NASH patients. So that's what everybody's waiting for because the market is so big, but I thought I would take a look at their portfolio to see if there was anything else that would make me feel comfortable about holding Viking long-term. And I was surprised at all these other things that are actually in their portfolio, but the one I'm going to talk about today is VK5211, which is a, a selective androgen receptor modulator. And they have written here that they're looking into the indication for hip fracture as well as muscle wasting. So the reason why I was interested in looking at this is because I saw this tweet from Semodo, and somebody linked to me on Twitter as well, that Leering mentioned that they, they weren't putting any value on VK5211, even though it could be a huge product um, because there's potential in cirrhotic sarcopenia. And they also said that the company hasn't indicated a clear strategy for this asset, which I agree with. So it's hard to really value it here. So this got me curious and made me want to look into it deeper. So uh, to give some background, you know, it's a SARM. I mentioned the name already, and it comes from SERM, which is a selective estrogen receptor modulator. The most popular one probably being tamoxifen, uh, which is used to treat breast cancer. It's a antagonist to the estrogen receptor. So these drugs are unique from the steroidal drugs in that they don't come with as many side effects, and they're also able to get targeted action. The reason for that is is multifold, and I'll just say that, you know, with testosterone, you worry about things like aromatization and then estrogenic side effects, but if it's just an oral drug that's a peptide that stimulates the androgen receptor, you don't have to worry about that. So things like gynecomastia, you don't have to worry about. Um, you might still worry about decreases in endogenous testosterone production, but uh, that's still less of a problem because these drugs can be so potent that you only need to give the patient enough of the drug so that it stimulates the receptors on the muscle, and the amount that you need to stimulate the receptors in the brain might be a lot higher. So there's ways that um, we can keep the drug in the body and not in the brain, so those are other like future ways that these drugs could be helpful to reduce side effects. Another benefit of using a SARM rather than the uh, normal steroidal drug is that you don't have to inject them. Because it's a, it's a cholesterol-based compound, um, it's hard to take them orally and have them function. They have to go through the liver 
uh, if you take the steroids orally and that kind of messes with them and leads to some liver toxicity. So you don't have to inject SARMs and you also get more consistent levels because you can just take it orally once a day and, uh, and it makes it a little easier for compliance too. The, uh, the use of these in the clinic are most applicable, in my opinion, for muscle or bone wasting diseases. Um, you can just imagine how these are probably being used today in the bodybuilding world or the sports world because you can get stimulation of the androgen receptor, um, which helps with bodybuilding. So clinically, though, Viking is looking towards a, a type of muscle wasting, and I'm kind of surprised that they started with non-elective hip fracture surgery only because we've seen so many companies go through looking at uh, muscle wasting due to cancer treatment. So Viking licensed this product from Ligand in order to, to develop it through this non-elective hip fracture surgery. And in their presentation, they talk about the rehab market being $1 billion annually. And if you use your imagination, you can really think of all these different procedures that uh, you could use a drug like VK5211 to maintain body weight under surgeries that might reduce it. So when I also looked at, uh, I wanted to see what the royalty structure was just to see how much of a cut Ligon was taking. And when I looked at it, um, all of Vikings products are actually licensed through Ligon. So, you know, if you're, if you're coming up with a model for Viking, keep in mind that a lot of the revenue is going to go to Ligon before they see any of it. And the one that's going to generate the most revenue, potential revenue for them is VK2809. And uh, Ligand takes up to 7.5% of the, the revenue here. So be mindful of that. I also noticed that they are licensing an oral EPO, which is not on Viking's pipeline here. So I wonder if they're trying to do something with that. And uh, it would definitely be interesting. Anyway, that's just an aside. So the uh, their phase two data that Viking showed, um, it was in patients that underwent uh, non-elective hip fracture surgery. And the primary endpoint was lean body mass change. And this is a little bit controversial because you could argue that lean body mass isn't going to necessarily confer a functional benefit. And we know that the FDA is more and more interested in functional clinical benefits here. So I'm not sure that this is the best move for them necessarily, but they do show that patients treated with VK5211 saw a significant increase in lean body mass, which is good. Also saw an increase in appendicular lean mass, as well as total mean body weight. They also saw a decrease in fat mass, which is good. It's good to know that the, the increases in mass are, are not related to fat at all, and it's really just this musculature that's increasing under the treatment. So their last slide that I saw in their corporate presentation, they compare their, the effectiveness of the compound to um, other products that have been in this area, and uh, Nandrolone, as well as Endosarm, and then a um, myostatin antibody. And myostatin is also an interesting muscle building uh, mechanism. So uh, VK5211 is a lot better in this department. And uh, at the end of their slides, they talk about exploring collaborations and licensing opportunities. So I wonder if Viking has to figure out a plan with Ligand if they're going to develop this into other areas. And then they talk about next steps in an orthopedic setting with a partner. So this is definitely good data for them um, in this you know, self-imposed uh, primary endpoint. I, I wonder what kind of talks they've had with the FDA regarding getting uh, this indication for uh, non-elective hip fracture surgery. 
So a couple points that, that I noticed is when I Googled for the amount of hip fracture surgeries that, that go on, you know, only 20% of patients really lose weight. So if the goal here is to only increase body weight of these patients, only 20% of them lose body weight. So it's not really uh, the main issue that goes on. So, you know, I put I posed these questions. Is the FDA going to approve for just this indication without any functional benefit? And uh, this is an issue when it came to endosarm because endosarm was able to increase body weight, but it wasn't able to increase functional improvements in, in muscle. So this was a problem for them, and they weren't able to get approval for that drug. So, you know, you could argue that VK5211 is best in class, and that might be true, but... They're going to have to show functional improvements uh, when it comes to this. And so I had to go digging a little bit deeper for this quote, but this was in their 2018 presentation. They did a, a poster on oral talk on uh, VK5211, and they say here that patients receiving the product uh, saw dose-dependent improvements in a six-minute walking distance test compared to placebo, but it was not powered for significance meaning it was not significantly different. In the high-dose treatment, the mean distance increased by approximately 22 meters compared to placebo. So, you know, we don't really know if there's a functional benefit of taking VK5211, and I think the FDA is going to want to see that if they're going to approve it for something like this. So, you know, as a phase two, it's not critical here, but if Viking wants to develop this into a serious therapy, I think uh, they're going to have to sit down and really discuss with the FDA what is the ideal way forward. But I will say that VK5211 does seem to be a very powerful drug, and uh, it will have potential if they're smart about their development moving forward. All right, so related to Viking's more important drug, though, they're uh, presenting a poster on Thursday, and uh, we already saw the abstract, but the poster itself might have some clues, some, some little nuggets of data there. So keep an eye out for that if somebody's going to uh, snap a picture. The more important catalyst is the Intercept presentation. Their abstract is going to be uh, off embargo on Thursday morning, so keep an eye out for that. Actually, I don't know. This is Central European time, so if you're in the U.S. like me, double-check this to make sure you're not too late if you're really playing that. And then I'll also keep an eye out for the Serious Therapeutics abstract, even though I, uh, I don't know too much about them. But maybe I'll become more interested once I see some good news there. So yeah, so I mentioned ESL this week. I'm going to be keeping an eye on that. And also uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, April 10th, the FOMC meeting minutes are going to come out, as well as there's going to be an ECB press conference. And they're going to be talking about their decision on interest rates. So keep an eye out for that. These are big macro movers. I think the, the FOMC meeting minutes, it's going to be good to get a, get a chance to look at the different members and what uh, what each one was saying, mostly because we're wondering if they're going to be even more dovish or if more rate hikes are coming in. So the meeting minutes give a little bit more insight into that, so keep an eye out. Uh, I'm not playing any any gambling things there, but it's worth keeping an eye on for, for big macro moves. I have here is my companies to look at. Also, I uh, didn't get a chance, but Marker, CRISPR, and Allergan. Um, yeah, so a quick portfolio wrap-up, even though this is uh, almost a week old. But things of note that I wanted to mention are Global Blood had a monster move, and I think it's still sitting around 58. I'm probably going to hold on to Global Blood up until the uh, higher 60s, where I think it's more fairly valued. And then Catalyst Bio also had a monster move, and it's pulled back up until... I think like nine and a half bucks, but I uh, I still like Catalyst Bio and I'm still holding on for the data. 
Overall, though, I think I'm sitting at around 16% for the portfolio, which is in line with the SPX and the IBB. I added IBB, and I'm probably going to add the NASDAQ and some other indices just to get a good, gives you a good impression on how you're doing compared to uh, a bunch of different metrics. So I'm going to start also including the volatility for that as well. And uh, it makes sense that the IBB volatility is lower than the XBI because IBB is much more weighted to the large cap, stable biotech or pharma, if you will. So with that, guys, I'm going to wrap it up. But thank you all so much for being here with me today. It uh, was a longer video, but I hope you got some value. And definitely leave me a comment or a like, subscribe, and that would be great. And with that, we'll see you next time.